Indeed, we rejoice as your people to say, the Lord is our salvation. That is the sweetest and most precious gift that we could receive is the gift of the Son. And in the Son, salvation. And in the Son, communion with God. And in the Son, hope. And in the Son, a future purchased for us on the cross, vindicated through the resurrection and coming at your return, O Lord Jesus. Help us to meditate much on these things and those words, the glories of the gospel. And help us now in the moments that we have as we open your word together to the gospel of Matthew. Unfold for us your glory. Your glory in this case against the backdrop of the wickedness of an apostate nation. But the glory of our salvation through your perfect suffering and your perfect sacrifice on our behalf. To you be all glory, praise, and honor. And it is in your name, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, we'll be looking this morning at verses 57 through 68. Matthew 26, 57 through 68. Now, we've been away, of course, from the gospel for a couple of weeks, and now we're entering back into it. And, of course, we're continuing through these final hours in the life of Jesus as he's headed towards the cross, where he will stand in our place as a substitute, suffering the guilt, the penalty for the guilt of our sin, that we might be made free. And it's actually very appropriate and apropos, I guess, that we are going through the crucifixion or these last hours of the life of Christ at the time of the Christmas season. Because that is indeed why Christ came, that he might die as a substitute in our place. There is no right understanding of his birth. In fact, if there is no right understanding of his death. And there is no right understanding of his death if there is no right understanding of his resurrection. And there's no right understanding of his resurrection if there is no right understanding and apprehension of his return in power and glory. So when we worship Christ, we worship the whole Christ. We worship all of who he is and all of what he has done. And at the center of what he is or who he is and what he has done is his atoning death on behalf of his people. That he stood in our place, that he is our substitute, that he is our true high priest, that he is our king, that he is our God And that he is our savior. And all of those things in fact are displayed in these accounts. It is his glory that is laid before us even in his shame. Even in the shame that he would suffer here. And that he does suffer at the hands of evil men. In fact the gospel of John more than any brings that out. That the crucifixion is often cast in the light of the glory of God. This ascension of Christ, all that it displayed in terms of God revealing his glory in the face of the Son. And so we see the glory of God, and it shines brightly, as I said, against the backdrop of the great darkness and wickedness of the sin, in this case of the apostate nation who are taking their own God and their own Savior and handing him over to die. And so here then is the light of the world. Willingly descending into the pit of wolves and of darkness. That he might be for us a savior. And so against this backdrop then we come this morning to these 
verses 57 through 68 in the Gospel of Matthew. Read them with me, and then we'll look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and he said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But... Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and he said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. And then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Let's look back up at verse 57. And in this account, we'll see the perversion of justice and the perfection of Christ. The perversion of justice and the perfection of Christ. Let's notice first then the perversion of justice and the evil motives and the apostate hearts that are displayed throughout this account. He says in verse 57, Now those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, who was high priest, and there the scribes and the elders had gathered. And indeed, we see here then the evil motives behind these rulers, which we've seen throughout the Gospels as they've constantly sought to destroy the testimony and the person of Jesus. They are the epitome of sin and what sin likes to do. That is, in this case, hide behind a veneer of righteousness, a mask of good intentions. In this case, hiding behind a mask of justice. And remember that these leaders were the ones who were ostensibly the models of righteousness to the nation of Israel. These were the the leaders, the leaders of God's people, a theocracy, a nation called out and established to glorify God among the world. And these were its leaders. And yet it is at their hands that the greatest act of injustice the world has ever known That is even possible for men to commit because there is none greater or none more worthy or none more glorious than the incarnate Son of God against whom it could be committed. And so it's impossible even to repeat in the depths of wickedness what is done here by these leaders, by these leaders of the Jews. Now this has already been made evident, of course. He opens up in verse 57 with those who had seized him, of course, coming right out of the garden where they had, being led by Judas, come to take him away. So every part of what they did, and the very manner in which they took him, was a demonstration of their true motives. They came, as we mentioned, in the, fear, the secrecy of night, 
under the cover of darkness. They came led by a traitor. You remember back in 26, Judas secretly went to them. And they said, and he said to them in verse 15, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver and they gave it to him. I mean, they knew at every point what they were doing was against the word of God, that it was against righteousness, that they were involved in what was unjust, unjust. They came with excessive force, clubs and torches and a Roman cohort and leaders of the Jews, and they came to take him away by violence, although they knew that it was nothing, had nothing to do with his ministry or anything consistent with how he taught or how he acted. It was complete hypocrisy. And the fact that the Roman soldiers were there was, again, another testimony of their seeking to manipulate even the Roman government, building a case for themselves that would eventually lead to them handing him over to the Roman authorities as someone plotting, in a way, sedition against the government of Rome, against Caesar himself. So at every point here, they're Their motives and their heart is on display. And they had already decided, of course, when we begin this section, that they were intending only to put him to death. Verse 4 of chapter 26, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. To kill him. So the whole procedure, everything that we're going to look at this morning, everything was a sham. It was all a joke. It was all hypocrisy. There was nothing about it that was seeking truth. There was nothing about it that was seeking justice. Everything was to achieve their one end, which was to get rid of this one who is called the Christ. That was their goal. That's what they were seeking to do. And again, it displays their wicked heart. Matter of fact, don't turn there, but just listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 15. He says... In comparison to just the externals of obedience to the law, he says this, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those defile the man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, which is what they are in the very act of doing, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, which they are going to pursue, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. So these are utterly defiled people, morally corrupt, spiritually unclean, and all pretending and presuming to stand in the place of judge and executioners of the only holy one in the room, namely Christ himself. So there's the darkness of their motives, and there is the perversion of justice. Now, Matthew tells us at the beginning of verse 57 that they led him away, those who had seized him, led him away to Caiaphas. They led him away to Caiaphas. Now, the gospel writers, each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record different parts of the events of that night. And they all highlight different aspects of what was actually going on. And there were really about three stages uh, to the Jewish part of this trial of Jesus. The first stage, which we'll look at in a bit, was to go to Ananias, who was unofficially a co-high priest with Caiaphas that year. And then they take him from there in a second phase to Caiaphas, where Matthew picks it up here. And then in a third phase, they're going to meet again the following day, the Sanhedrin, and hand him over to the civil powers, the government of Rome. Now, according to Jewish law, the Sanhedrin had the right to condemn someone to death. They could stone them, 
they could behead them, they could burn them, and they could strangle them. Those were the four ways of death that were allowed uh, for capital punishment by the Sanhedrin. But this was not permitted by the Romans. In other words, they were not their own authority. They were under the authority of Rome. Rome did not permit that, John 18.31 tells us. And so therefore, they needed more than a verdict by the Sanhedrin to put him to death. And so there were really two general stages to this plot. The first was, which we'll see this morning, this Jewish plot, which was to condemn him on religious crimes. In other words, as one who was a blasphemer in Israel, which is going to be the charge at the end they finally get to. But knowing then that they weren't able to put him to death, they needed something to justify his being eliminated, and so then they take him with trumped-up charges as a usurper of the authority of Caesar, and they're going to bring him to then a civil trial, which is going to be before Pilate and Herod, and then Pilate again, another three stages. So this is well calculated, and their ultimate end, again, is his death. It is to condemn him to death. Now, as I mentioned, that Matthew moves immediately here in his record to the semi-official trial before Caiaphas. But John fills out the details of events previous to this in John chapter 18. And you may want to turn there just for a bit. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 12. John 18, verse 12. And this is really just a few hours before where Matthew picks it up. John records to us where they took him actually immediately from the garden, which was to the house of Annas. Look at verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for for he was his father, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, becomes the first stage of this Jewish attempt to indict Jesus against crimes that would lead to his death. Now, the situation of the high priesthood in Israel at that time is somewhat complex. The Annans held the official position of high priest from about A.D. 6 to about A.D. 15, or definitely A.D. 15. He was appointed by a Roman official named Cornelius in 6 A.D., removed in 15 A.D. by another However, according to the Mosaic law, when someone was a high priest, they were a high priest forever. It was a lifetime appointment. And so although Rome exercised their authority by appointing a high priest and removing a high priest, in the eyes of the Jews, Annas was still the high priest. He was still the one who was rightfully owner of that position. And it was particularly vexing to the Jews that the Romans would make such decisions about who did or who did not hold the office. But nonetheless, the Jews working within this system submitted to some level to the Roman decision. But also because of that situation, Romans' involvement in the religious affairs of the Jews, this position of high priest had become highly politicized and corrupt. And that is certainly the case of Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law. And Annas particularly, particularly, he was the one who held more of an influence really among the Jews because they saw him still as the high priest. He was the one that they honored, in this case, particularly by that position. 
He held much influence still in the, the events and the happenings of the temple and what went on. As a matter of fact, he was behind largely and profited, no doubt, extensively from temple activities and namely the sacrifices that were sold there by the merchants in the temple area. So Jesus is overturning the table twice in the temple area, condemning that wicked practice. It was no doubt an offense to Annas and Caiaphas and his family. And part of the reason behind his hatred here and his motives for wanting to have Jesus condemned. Now Joseph Josephus, an ancient historian, you know that name, records for us that there were, in fact, five sons of Annas who had held the position of high priest after him. And so while these were rotating family members in that position, again, it was really Annas who was the power behind them. He was really the one who held the most influence. And so though Caiaphas was the official high priest, according to Rome, it was Annas who really held that influence and position in the eyes of the Jews. As a matter of fact, Luke, in Luke chapter 3, records this situation in this way. He says, and don't turn there, but Luke chapter 3, 2, he says... It was in the high priesthood, he's recording this the year, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John and so forth. So when all of these events were happening, he acknowledges that there was really sort of this dual and this shared kind of high priesthood that was going on. And so here then, the Jews, in recognition of that, they bring Jesus first to Annas. They bring him first to his house. Now what was the purpose of them taking him, uh, Jesus to Annas first. Well, as I already mentioned, it was probably because he was seen as the real authority. He was the one who was seen as who would give his stamp of approval over these procedures. And it was also to kind of come up with a charge by which to lay at Jesus's feet. And so at every point of this, the dubious nature of all of the proceedings are laid before us, laid before us. Now, the details of the court proceeding of what actually happened in the Sanhedrin and how that went actually come to us from a later period, but are probably reflective of what was going on here in the first century. And in fact, it was such a debacle of justice according to those standards of procedure that it's held by many that these events really aren't the case, that the gospel writers got it all wrong. But in fact, it is just the opposite of the case. It shows at every point how utterly corrupt their decision and their actions were in the persecution of the condemnation of Jesus. Now, in general procedure, let me just lay out for you a couple of the things that were supposed to happen, particularly on a capital crime. The trial of someone who was accused of a capital crime was supposed to take place only during the day, not during the nighttime. Charges were to be bought by credible witnesses who themselves were examined for their truthfulness The witnesses for the accused person were actually charged to give their testimony first. So at first they would hear the ones for uh, the accused, and then later they would hear witnesses against him. The trial was to be held in the temple courts, and if convicted, there was to be a two-day interval for prayer and sometimes for fasting. And the idea behind that was that there was to be an emphasis on not only justice, to make sure justice was in fact being executed, but also on mercy, the idea of mercy. And furthermore, it was not to take place during a Jewish feast, which may be associated with 
the fasting. But the point here is this, that at every level they violated these procedures. And so they sought to keep the appearance of Jewish prudence, but in fact they were knowingly at every point perverting it. They were breaking it. And so it is at night that they come and they seize Jesus. And it is at night that they bring him to the house of Annas. Down at verse 15, 19. And so what do they do? So they bring him there. And then Annas, the high priest, questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. He's trying to find something by which Jesus will incriminate himself to justify their charges. You see how it's all backwards. It's all backwards. So what does Jesus reply to them? He says in verse 20, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. They know what I said. Why does Jesus respond this way? Again, because he knows this whole thing is a mockery of justice. He's challenging them. And really, and by doing this, he's exposing their hypocrisy. Again, the right proceeding was that they were supposed to have a charge from a credible witness that was then brought against the accused. Here they rejected all of that. And so Jesus is really calling them out here on the hypocrisy. And saying, there's others who know what I said. If you have a problem with what I said, and if there's something that I said worthy of my condemnation, let them come forth and bring it against me. Let them bring the charge against me. But notice here, this is how sin works. This is how sin works. In this way, they're trying to wear a mask of righteousness. They're trying to appear to follow through the procedures of justice. But in fact... They're not. It's all a sham. It's all a sham. And Jesus is exposing that. And so look what happens. It says, when he had said this in verse 22, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way that you answer the high priest? Again, there's no reason for him to do that. There was no justification for him to do that. It was a pure act of arrogance and hypocrisy. And it may even be that this officer was trying to save face for Annas, the high priest, because he was so openly condemned by his actions. In either case, Jesus again confronts them. Look at verse 23. If I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? To which there is no recorded reply. And so really at this point, so they've taken him now. This is this first stage. They've taken him to the house of Annas. They have sought to come up with some kind of charge. And the only thing that has resulted from this is the deep frustration of the officials for having nothing to charge against him. For being exposed by him as being wrong and acting unjustly. Breaking even their own procedures. And so what do they do? And then it says in verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to the high priest, Caiaphas. And that's where Matthew picks it up. And you can turn back over to Matthew chapter 57. So he's already been at the house of Annas. Nothing has come of it in terms of the charges. But now he sends him away to Caiaphas, who is the official high priest that year before the Romans and the one who would preside over the rulings of the Sanhedrin. And there he is to be then officially condemned by the Jews. Now, the fact that he's just led over from the house of Annas to the house of Caiaphas uh, is showing us, too, that these were taking place in their private homes. And more likely, they 
were juxtaposed to each other. They were next to each other, and there was a courtyard that possibly they even shared. And so he was just moved from one house to the next. Again, all of this highly illegal according to their own standards. And as they're doing that, almost as an aside, it's going to get picked up later in verse 69. Peter is following along. He's going into the courtyard, it says, following him at a distance. He's in the courtyard of the high priest, sitting down, watching what's going to happen. What is going to be the outcome of these proceedings? There's no telling how much he saw. But here he is now, Jesus, before the Sanhedrin. Before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was essentially the supreme court in Israel. That was the role that they functioned as. The Sanhedrin consisted of about 71 members... The number 70 was drawn from the number of elders that God commissioned Moses to appoint, listen, to administer justice in Israel in the wilderness wanderings and in Numbers 11, 16. The extra, 71, there were 70 elders, the extra was Moses himself. And according to the later rabbinic writings, there were also lesser Sanhedrin courts, which consisted of about 23 members, and these were in smaller towns, towns where there were at least 120 males or so. And the reason that they had these odd numbers was so that the court could not be evenly divided. There always had to be a tiebreaker, someone who could, could break the lock, lock of agreement if that were to happen. So although the biblical foundation for the Sanhedrin was grounded in the time of Moses, the actual establishment of it came from the time of Ezra and the Jews. But the point here is this. Although they had varied influence throughout their history from the time of Ezra, here they wielded great influence. And their primary, uh, primary identity was this, that they were to uphold justice in Israel. They were to uphold the right application of God's laws to the people. They were to be the very model of righteousness. And when it functioned properly, that is, in fact, what they were. But that is not what they were doing here. Listen to this, actually, in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16. This was to be the character of these these men, these rulers of the Sanhedrin, he said this, You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all of your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, listen, justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So they're, they're standing on display as the ones who are the epitome of that. Justice and justice alone you are to pursue. But again, they're, they're not doing that. They're not doing that. As a matter of fact, speaking of Caiaphas, John 11 tells us this. You'll remember these words well. Because he was... Well, John says this. This is after the resurrection of Lazarus. They meet together. If you'll remember, some went out and told the chief priests and Pharisees. They convened a council here. There, again, the Sanhedrin, they're gathered together at an earlier point. And they say this, that if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. 
Now he said this, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. The point here is this, that the motive behind everything that Caiaphas is doing, presiding over this false and fake court, had nothing to do with justice. It had everything to do with ridding this troubler in Israel, according to their own thinking. They had to get rid of him. It was a matter of political expediency that Jesus die rather than that Rome come and somehow bring trouble against the nation. It was a matter of them ridding themselves of this one who kept exposing them before the people. Every part of it was, was an act of injustice. It was an act of injustice. And this is exactly, again, how sin works We see it all the time, not only in this case, but all the time. Wicked people and agendas are often very intentional and methodical while trying to hide behind a veneer of righteousness. Hiding behind a veneer of righteousness. We see that in homosexual agenda. We see it in Planned Parenthood agenda, this methodical nature. Going to the courts, winning battles so that they can set precedents. The things that they attack, such as churches in which they try to force laws concerning restrooms and marriage and use of facilities. All of that's very intentional. It has the veneer of righteousness and equality and kindness to all people. But the intention is to destroy and silence anything that would oppose them. It's no different. That's how sin works. That's exactly what they're doing here. Hiding behind a mask of righteousness, but in fact... In fact, doing a dastardly deed of evil. Notice what they did. So they bring him to Caiaphas, looking for who's looking for a charge. The scribes and the elders are gathered together. This is Sanhedrin. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. The law required at least two witnesses for a charge to be valid. And these were to be trustworthy witnesses. I won't read it, but mark it down. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 19 warns this. Not only were they to be true witnesses, but if they were in fact found out to be a false witness, the witness themselves was to be put to death. It was to be put to death. A slave could not be a witness. A woman could not be a witness. A child could not be a witness. It had to be an approved witness. A male and one who was credible. And if he was shown to be false, he himself was to be put to death. Notice how openly they're disavowing all of that. How openly they're disavowing it. They themselves, knowing that there was no true witness against him, are trying to find false witnesses. Again, they're just looking for a trumped-up charge. But the problem was, though Matthew tells us that Many false witnesses came forward, verse 60. Mark tells us in Mark 14 that their stories kept contradicting each other. So people were coming supposedly with charges against him, but their stories didn't match. But eventually, Matthew tells us in verse again 60, two came forward and they offered a somewhat, not completely, consistent story and stated that he said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days, verse 61. Of course, they're referring to John 2.19. When Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In what way is their witness false? First of all, it was false that Jesus did not say he would destroy the temple. He says, if you destroy the temple, 
And secondly, he was talking about his body, not the physical temple of Herod, which was before them. In other words, they were twisting his words. But it's not like the leaders cared about that. They were just looking for something that they could use against him. And in fact, they would become culpable of doing the same thing, twisting his words, when they would take him before Pilate. He says this in Luke 23, verse 2. They began to accuse him before Pilate, and they said, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. He never said that. He never said that. He said just the opposite, actually. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, and therefore a threat to Rome. They knew those charges were a lie. They knew they weren't true. It was manipulation at every point. Lying and manipulation. And what is amazing about this and what is actually a warning to us is this. These were the leaders of Israel. They knew God's word. They knew what the Old Testament said. And they knew God's hatred against the very thing which they were doing. Listen to Proverbs 6. These are words that they would have known very well. Very well. Proverbs 6 says this. There are six things which the Lord hates. He has seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, like the blood that is going to come as the fruit of a bribe in secrecy from a traitor, a heart that devises wicked plans. They had known all from the beginning that they had devised only to put this innocent man to death because even from Caiaphas' own mouth, mouth, it was expedient for them so that he could die and that Rome could not come against the nation. Feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Every one of those they were doing. Every one of those they were doing. And they knew that it was an abomination to the Lord, and yet that did not slow them down at all. And in fact, it was because there was no fear of God before their eyes. They were so blinded by sin. What does that have to do with us? This. It's not knowing the words of Scripture that marks spiritual reality. It's trembling before God and His words. It is obedience. It's not the fact that they knew those words. It is the fact that those words produced no fear of God in their heart. And the same thing can happen to us. Spiritual life is not a matter of knowing Scripture in terms of its data. It's not a matter of knowing doctrine. It is marked by this one thing, our obedience. We read about it this morning. That the words of Christ abide in us. That we keep His commandments and so display our love for Him. So what are they displaying? They're displaying, as we read earlier, an unclean heart. There was no fear of God. There was no love for God. There was no desire to obey Him. But the mask of religion is very effective at covering that stuff up. That's why empty religion is one of the most dangerous places to be. It's almost better to be an atheist, outwardly disobedient, than it is to hide under a mask of religion a corrupt heart and an unclean heart and unclean desires. Because there's enough there to justify a conscience while condemning it to death. And that's in fact what they were doing here. Nonetheless, even though they knew this was false witnesses or these were false witnesses, they accepted it 
And what was the response? Verse 62, the high priest stood up and he said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? And yet he remained silent. Jesus remained silent. And this was no doubt frustrating Caiaphas beyond belief. Insane in this outburst of anger at this one who was so defying him and whom he despised so deeply. As a matter of fact, he goes so far in verse 63 to say, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. You tell us. Ironic. Really, there's so much irony here. Here it is, the fact that he's adjuring him by the living God, and the living God is standing before him. And yet he is by that name trying to force Jesus to to his wicked plan. And Jesus utterly rejected that, utterly rejected that. And his response, Jesus' response, is absolutely devastating and piercing. Look at what he says in verse 64 when he broke his silence. He said this, You have said it. You have said it. That's devastating. That's devastating. He said the same thing to Judas... Actually, in there at the table, Judas said in verse 25, who was betraying him, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, You have said it yourself. You said it yourself. He's going to say to Pilate. When Pilate would say, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, You say. You say. You said it. It's piercing. In other words, You said it. Jesus is saying to this high priest, You have spoken clearly and show that you know exactly the claim that I am making and that the Father himself is testifying about me. You said it. You know exactly what's being claimed. You know exactly what you're doing and your guilt is actually on your head. That's essentially what he's doing. You know the Father's testimony. He'd already had that discussion with them back in John chapter 5. We won't go there. You know the testimony. And in fact, 1 John 5.10 says, Look, if you don't believe the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son, you make God a liar. You have false witnesses against me. You're the one calling God a liar. And you're guilty. You've said it. Not only the high priest, but everyone who denies the truth about Christ, that He is the Son of God, that He is the true King, That he is the only savior from sin. Anyone who denies that has that burden then on themselves of the guilt of knowing the truth that they are rejecting. And calling God a liar. Calling God a liar. And those words will no doubt ring forever in the ears of that high priest. Unless unrecorded for us in scripture he somehow repented. Those words will forever burn in his ears and accuse his conscience throughout eternity under the judgment of God. And as it will with every sinner who rejects the truth, who rejects the message of Christ. And so it is here. It's devastating, devastating what Jesus, what Jesus is exposing. But at this point his heart was hardened. And the high priest, he says, then tore his robes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
And of course, here they got what they wanted. They said he is guilty of death. He's guilty of death. They got what they wanted. It's interesting here because technically blasphemy was was speaking against the name of God. Actually, technically, claiming to be Messiah wasn't in and of itself blasphemy. But they knew, they knew that Jesus was saying more than that. They knew that he was saying more than that. Again, these are the same leaders, the same people who had several times throughout his ministry had already picked up stones to kill him because he was making himself equal to God, claiming that God was his father. And why these are messianic titles, no doubt, even son of God and son of man are both messianic titles. He's saying more than that. He's saying more than that. He's claiming to be the one that Daniel 7.13 spoke of, coming on the clouds to execute judgment, sitting at the right hand of power of God, the one who stands in the place of God as judge. They knew what he was saying. They knew what he was saying. But what is it that we observe here overall? This is kind of the big point here. It's namely just this. It's this. The nature and the darkness of sin. John 3.19 says this. You know it. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's it. That's it. That's what's on display. They were afraid of Christ because he exposed their deeds as evil and that's how it is with all sin. It seeks to hide from the light. What does sin do? It hides. Sin seeks to escape exposure. We do that in a thousand different ways. Paul says we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Suppress it and hold it down so that our conscience will become numb to it. And there certainly had. Certainly had. Why do those with wicked agendas want to completely silence any voice for the truth of Christ and unrighteousness? Why do we have in our country a whole side, yes, on a political scale, but even more a moral scale, that wants to completely silence religious freedom? It is because inasmuch as the church has an open voice, it is a conviction against the sin of a culture and of a society. And they want to silence it. That's the only answer. That's the only answer. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. Why do people get so offended at the name of Christ? It's because when he's truly represented, he testifies that the world's deeds are wicked and salvation is needed. And that it's only in him. And that is a moral offense. It's offense. To a sinner who's convicted of their sin... To a sinner who feels the pollution of their sin and of their soul and longs for freedom and longs for forgiveness and longs for reconciliation with God, it's glorious news. It's wonderful news. But to someone who wants to hold on to their sin, who wants to revel in their uncleanness, who wants no authority in their life but their own, it is a completely offensive message. Completely offensive message. And so it is to them. He was a threat to their power and they hated him And so that's why all of this is going on. Owen said, as we've mentioned many times, a wonderful phrase, sin always aims at the utmost. And at its most essence and base level, sin wants nothing more than to destroy God. 
That's what it wants. To destroy God and silence him. Let's move on to the second point. So here's a perversion of justice. Perversion of justice. Uh, let's look next to the perfection of Jesus who shines through all of this. I mentioned at the beginning that in anticipation of these events, Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 12 this. He says, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And the Father responded, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. So in the shame and the rejection here, we see really, and the main point of all of this, is the glory of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. We see the glory of the Father. We sang about the Trinity, our last song. The Father and the Son and the Spirit. Here we see the glory of the Father who is giving up His Son to suffer. The Father is doing this. It's not Him helplessly at the hands of wicked men. It's the Father who is giving His Son. The Father who has ordained every event. Everything that happened, Paul said in Acts, was according to the predetermined plan of God to do everything that God had foreordained would happen. It includes being spit on and being the victim of injustice and so on and so forth. Which is just, again, another irony. His bearing their injustice was so that he might bear the justice of God for them. Complete irony. We see the glory of the Son in the person of Christ because he willingly came and submitted himself to all of this shame and to all of this injustice Ultimately, again, to satisfy the justice of God. We see the glory of the Spirit who was sustaining him through all of this and is borne witness to Christ through every detail of what was going on. But I want to note to you about three or four ways that we see particularly the perfection of Christ here. And it's this. Look back at verse 63a. The first part of verse 63. But Jesus kept silent. Jesus kept silent. Incredible statement. This displays his perfect trust and submission to the will of the Father. Remember, that had already been settled in his heart. He knew what was coming. And it wasn't really this, of course, that he was so worried about. It was the cross, which is coming still after this. But he said this in verse 42. My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And what did he do in verse 45? He got up. Or verse 46, he got up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He kept silent. His life was utterly submitted to the will of the Father, even in the light of such injustice. He was utterly committed to filling, fulfilling Scripture. Again, that's throughout. The betrayers of Judas, he said, that's so that the Son of Man might go just as it is written of him. Them coming to seize him in the garden, he says all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. In other words, it has to happen this way. His silence shows his submission. And it shows him to be the one that Isaiah spoke about nearly 700 years before. Listen to this, Isaiah 53, you know it. He says in verse 7, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet... He did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for this generation who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He's the suffering servant. He was silent before his accusers. Because he was the perfect substitute. 
And let me tell you, beloved, he's also an example for us. Listen to 1 Peter 2. He says this in chapter 2. You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He was silent and beloved. That is a display of his trust and his perfect submission to the Father. And who knows what God will call us to? Who knows what trials you have in your life now because of a righteous life? But if there are ones that God has ordained for you, then you would learn from the example of Christ to trust the Father in the midst of it, knowing that God will vindicate your name in due time. God will justify his work in you in due time. And that's the second part. We see then the perfection of his obedience and submission to the Father. We also see his perfect holiness and righteousness. He said earlier to them before Annas, If I have done wrong, then accuse me of the wrong. But they could find no witness against him. And at every point throughout the ministry of Jesus and throughout the trial of Jesus, the writers of the Gospels make clear to affirm from the mouth of a Roman soldier, from the mouth of Pilate, from the mouth of the wicked leaders, from every single person involved, that Jesus was absolutely innocent of the charges against him. Absolutely innocent. Pilate's going to say in verse 19 of chapter 27... Or Pilate's wife, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Nothing. Pilate himself in verse 24 is going to wash his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The fact that they are calling all of these false witnesses shows that they know there really was no true charge against him. They had to trump it up on their own. At every point, Christ is shown to be the sinless son of God. The sinless, innocent, perfect Lamb of God. Even though it has the most wicked and diabolical darkness around him, he shines as the true light. He shines as the true light. If I've done wrong, accuse me of wrong. And of course, there was silence after that. There was no wrong. There was no wrong. Calvin says this, Amidst the darkness of their rage... The innocence of the Son of God shone so brightly that the devils themselves might know that he died innocent. There was no charge against him. No charge against him. And I'll tell you, beloved, we can rejoice in that. Because you know what? Left to its own, any kind of religion of man is going to end up exactly where these high priests were. Corrupt. Loving power. Self-centered. It is only Christ who could be the true high priest for us. While you had that false high priest, it says this in verse 26 of Hebrews 7. It was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. 
the glory of Christ here is that this, in that those who according to man's religion are corrupt and fallen and perverting everything having to do with justice, it is the perfect high priest, the one who is truly our intercessor to God, who is standing in our place and who stands in our place now in the presence of God to make intercession for us. The glory of Christ as high priest shines against the corruption of these high priests who were unclean in every way. In every way. And he's also, just as a note here, the model and a testimony for us of how we are to suffer in this world. Not as sinners, but as righteousness. If you suffer in this world, Peter says, make sure that you suffer for righteousness. If you suffer for sin in this world, don't pat ourselves on the back by burying it well. We're only getting what our due is. But if we suffer for righteousness, if we suffer because of our innocence, if we suffer because of our obedience, if we suffer because we are truth tellers, then in that suffering we are then to rejoice because we share in the suffering of Christ. That's Peter's message. Who saw all of this, who learned that lesson well. And... The way that we're able to do that is exactly how Christ was able to do that, who sets the model. It is because Christ, as he said, is going to come and be vindicated before all men when he comes on the clouds, seating at the right hand of the power of God. You can only live that way. You can only live in a way that will bring the displeasure of the world and endure it well if you have an eternal perspective. That's the only way. If you think in light of eternity. And so now lastly, and I'm going to make this just very, very briefly. We see his perfect meekness. Again, he says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. How does that show his meekness? Because meekness is this. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength controlled. Strength controlled. Jesus has all power He had all rights, as he had already said earlier, to call a whole thousands of angels to fight for him. But he has it under control. He's not using it. Why? Because he had something that he was accomplishing, namely to be a substitute sacrifice. And the imagery is even more than that, though. When he says, upon the clouds, sitting at the right hand of power, it speaks not only of his divine presence, but also of divine judgment. Picking up enemy, uh, imagery of Psalm 110 and Daniel 7.13 I mentioned earlier. So the one here being judged is the true judge who will judge not only these wicked rulers one day, but will judge all men. There was a foretaste of that in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but it was only a foretaste. It was only the foretaste. And so he who is the true king and the true judge is the one here submitting to their unrighteous judgment, but he says... God will vindicate. God will be vindicated. I will be vindicated. And the things will be reversed in God's own time. Their response to it, verse 67, just diabolical cruelty. They spat in his face, beat him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hits you. Again, this is a violation of their own law. Again, the law was to emphasize mercy It was to do everything it could to exonerate first the condemned criminal. And yet they did just the opposite. They were doing everything that they could do to condemn an innocent man. And then in that condemnation, not only was it false, but then they had every kind of cruelty to go with it, which shows that they had a true hatred, a true hatred for him. 
They wanted to inflict as much pain and suffering and shame as possible and to give full vent to their hatred of Christ. Their hatred of Christ. It's the, their ultimate expression against of their rebellion. Ultimate expression. Well, there's more to say here, but let's close with this. We'll pick it up a little bit tomorrow, next week. But their actions are merely a display of their willful ignorance. How strong, how successful, how self-righteous they felt in the midst of all of this. How they felt in their own minds that finally, him who exposed us, now we have the upper hand and we're going to show him. We're going to take full revenge. We're going to exact every bit of hatred against him. We're going to do that. But that's going to all change one day. It's going to all change one day. But let me end with these words by a writer by the name of William Barclay. Commenting on these passages, he says this, To this day, when people are brought face to face with Jesus Christ, they must either hate him or love him. They must either submit to him or desire to destroy him. No one who realizes what Jesus Christ demands can possibly be neutral. The choice must become between being his loyal servant or becoming his foe. They had chosen to be his foes and there'll be a price to pay for that. But how can we look at such a wonderful Savior, such one who offers forgiveness of sin, such one who suffered in our place and not want to be his loyal follower in every way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Our Lord, we thank you for coming and redeeming sinners, but not every sinner indiscriminately. You redeem those who repent, Your redemption is for those who demonstrate the Spirit of God's work in them. Who cry out to you in the sense of our uncleanliness and say, I am guilty. You're innocent. I'm the one who should have been charged with the crime for my sins by the heavenly court. And will be one day. Except that Christ bore the guilt. He suffered the injustice in my place. He stood Condemned that I might stand free. He wore a crown of thorns that I might wear a crown of righteousness. I pray that we would rejoice much in this and meditate on it. Those who know us and those who don't. That they would consider the glory of Christ and trust in you today. And these things we pray in your matchless name, O Lord. Amen.